Dr. Carter G. Woodson said that truth comes to us from the past. The erasure of Africans in Africa from history is a great and significant crime against not just people of African descent, but all of history. With Africa being the cradle of civilization and humankind, it's essential to our collective memory as humans. One of our aims at the Parlay in All Blue is to do our part, just our part, we can't do it all, in ensuring that our listeners can go beyond Egypt, or at least want to go beyond Egypt, and I have that in air quotes. And Egypt has a rich, rich history that you probably should go deeper into, or I should go deeper into. Or that we can move beyond the catch-all phrase of kings and queens. Today, Dr. Emmanuel Nusiri joins us to discuss the empire of Mali. Dr. Nusiri is the lead social science factory at the African Leadership University in Mauritius. He's been a research scholar of the Pan-African Institute for Development in his home of Cameroon. He's worked in, at Cornell, the University of Illinois, and at the UN Commission for Africa in Addis Ababa. Without a doubt, he's a top-notch scholar on African history and a passionate evangelist for the importance of knowing Africa's rich history. So with that, we will begin doing our part or add to doing our part by exploring the empire of Mali, Sujata, the Lion King, and Mansa Musa the Great. Stick with us. Thank you again for joining and welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. So, Dr. Emmanuel Nusiri, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm fine, Mark, and um, it's an honor to be here. Well, we are we are honored to have you and, and someone of your stature and knowledge and experience. Um, we're really pleased to be here. I want to start off with thanking you because when I contacted you about doing an episode on some portion or some history of Africa, I was talking about something that actually just happened relatively recently in the 19th century. But you kind of kindly backed me up and just sort of just said, let's, let's think about this. And then as I started to pull it back, we could start with just the geography of Africa, right? With the Sahara and with its rivers, the Niger River, the, uh, the Congo River, the Nile River. We could start with that. We could start with the many kingdoms, Egypt, Nubia, Benin, Kush, Aksum, Ghana. We could start with any of those things. We could start also with the music that's come out, with art or what have you. It's a, it's a continent with a really rich and long history. So if the first humans are from Africa, then the history is at least as old as that and as rich. So I want to thank you first for, for helping me to put this into perspective. And the other thing is the continent is huge. I mean, you could put in physically the U.S., China, Japan, and India, and most of Europe would all fit in physically. So you know, anything that we're going to talk about today is just an entry point for us. Yes, 
I'm always thankful and um, I'm always happy uh, to do my little part to share more about Africa, to share more about the continent and its history, to inform and to create awareness. And um, often when I'm called like this to do my little part, one of the things I personally make sure I start with is to let my audience know that, as you've already said, Africa is huge. We've always been there. It's greatly diverse. Our history, you know, can be seen through uh, so many of what our ancestors left us. Their ruins, their pottery, their gold. So I let people understand that there's no one podcast, one lecture, one single book that you can read and say, I've captured African history now. Uh, First, People come to Africa thinking, well, there's possibly no history here. Or if there's a history, it only goes back 500 years. And then because they think, oh, there's no history, but if there's a history, it goes back 500 years, they then think, oh, then it must be simple. There must be this one volume that I can get. Perhaps uh, some of the volumes by uh, Czech and Tadjop I can get and I'd capture it all. Or I can go read um, Alex Haley's Roots. And once I've read Root, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> right, right. But, yeah. but we've got to be realistic. Any part of the world, be it uh, China, France, Britain, North America, or Brazil, there's no place where people have lived and have founded civilizations that you can understand just by one book, one lecture. It's trickle by trickle. It's investment of time and effort and interest. And you will build your understanding over time. So I hope that those that are listening to us, we will share the little we can share in this program, but we encourage you to see this as a, as a starting point. Yes, this is a portal. This is the beginning of a journey. And even with the topic that we are we're we're gonna take today, I mean it's just a portal. I, I highly encourage you to go out and dig in more because even this this piece is is just the beginning and very fascinating. But we are going to spend spend some time today to talk about the empire of Mali. And uh, it's an overview of its history and, you know, some of the major figures and what have you. I I do want to start with, even with Mali, we're talking about a kingdom in West Africa. And we're also talking about an empire, a kingdom or a time period that's in between two other great kingdoms, which we'll talk about Ghana and Songhai. But anyway, there's so much to get into, and I'll, I'll stop. And Dr. Nasiri, why don't you take us through Mali? Yeah, it's interesting that um, I got to, to to talk with you and had a conversation with you, and we settled on Mali. And part of the reason is this. When people think about the history of Africa, they think of Egypt. Yes. First and foremost, Egypt. Then they think of Kush. And then they think of um, Axum. Ethiopia, and all that, you see, they come from North Africa to East Africa. And there's some kind of um, blind spot about West Africa. 
or Central Africa or Southern Africa. That's why I think we said, hey, you know what? One thing we can do is to talk about Mali. It's an empire that was founded by Sundiata. This goes back a thousand years ago, almost a thousand years ago. He defeated the great and mighty empire of Ghana. Now, don't mistake in the empire of Ghana with present-day country of Ghana. There are two different things. Um, empire of Ghana was somewhere between Sahel Africa to Nile Africa. So don't confuse that with the country of Ghana uh, today. So Sondiata conquered Ghana. And after that, he, he went on this expansionist project to intentionally build his empire to be one of the greatest in the world. You know, he was an empire builder and he had dreams and foresight and all that. These empire builders back in Africa, sometimes people think they they were just peasants with sticks and spears and all that. They had no sense of agency. They had no philosophy contemplation. But when you look at Mali, what the founder put in place and what subsequent rulers of Mali decided to do, you will understand that these were a people with a plan. As an example, after he died and he passed on power and all that, at some point, a king of Mali decided that he's going to sail the Atlantic Ocean. Yes. Imagine that that sense of ambition. Yes. That sense of ambition. The king of an empire who put a fleet of over 100 boats and said, I'm going to conquer the ocean. I'm going to get to what is on the other side. So first and foremost, he knew that there was something on the other side. Yes. How did he know this? From reading, studying, consulting scholars, both in Mali, in his empire, and out of his empire. So these empires, be it Egypt, Kush, Ghana, Mali, there was a continuity with these empires. You see? So when Sundiata founded Mali, he did not do that in a vacuum. Right. He did that conscious of the history of the empires that had come before him, the war strategies of the empires that had come before him, the political and economic thinking of the empires that had come before him, the social organizational skills of the empires that had come before him. Because there's a continuity between all these empires. And he established Mali, and till date, this has been one of the most impressive empires from West Africa. Let me let me ask you, um, Doctor, or just to, to put into context, when you talk about Mali and in, in it as an empire, it was while it's in West Africa, my understanding is, is that the trade and the source of wealth, the gold, you can find artifacts as far as like right now from Mali during that time period in China, 
And you can also find artifacts from China. I'm talking about from the 13th century, from the 1200s in Mali today, which gives you a sense that this was a kingdom that was not just sort of, like you said, a a fiefdom or a small village in West Africa. This was an international community and that it is supplied a significant amount of the world's gold and coinage and those things. I'm glad that you brought this up. Yes. Um, when we talk about African empires, people think, oh, perhaps it's the size of New Jersey. Or some of them might think, oh, perhaps it's the size of New York or Detroit. No. Right. These were large territories. As I said earlier, they had standing armies. They had uh, scholars. They also had members of their society who were well-traveled. And because they had all these kinds of people like we have in modern-day society, they knew what was going on in other parts of the world in terms of politics, in terms of trade. They knew the kinds of goods that they could produce and export to generate wealth. So, for instance... The Kingdom of Mali or the Malian Empire, they had gold. They had gold. And they had developed the technology to mine gold, to transport gold, and sell gold to their neighbors in the north. So there there was a booming gold trade between Mali and empires in the north, Egypt. And the gold that went from Mali, it went to North Africa. And from North Africa, it went into Europe. It went to China, the gold from Mali. And all these different people along the way, North Africa, in Europe, in China, in India, they knew that the gold was coming from interior Africa. They knew. There was no, there was, there was, there was no confusion as to the source of that gold. They knew. Yeah. And and so, and, you know, from my understanding is, is that uh, Mali during this time period and and the the kingdom or empires from 1200s through the 1600s, about two thirds of the world's gold is coming from Mali. So anybody that's issuing coinage or for trade, whether in their country, in Europe, like Dr. Nusiri said, or in China or India or in in, in in North Africa, any place was getting it most of the time from, from Mali. I do want to go back to Sunjata for a minute because he is also someone who is an extraordinary leader in, in history. And he also has the legend, uh, the name, the Lion King, too, right? Yes. Say a little bit more about his leadership c- capabilities and things that he did as a leader. Well, you've got to understand that to create a dynasty, whatever kind of dynasty, today i got kids, I want to create a dynasty, right? There are foundations that I have got to put in place. Now, he was a leader that, that, that understood, of course, first and foremost, he needed to have a professional army a standing army, a well-fed army, a disciplined army. He knew that. One would say, but how did he know that? Of course, 
He knew the kingdoms that had come before him. He knew the secrets of their success. And he decided to emulate this in Mali. So he put a lot of emphasis on a disciplined army, put a lot of emphasis on learning, learning, on scholarship in Mali. In fact, all the leaders that 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 came after him, they all did that. They all put an emphasis on learning, on scholarship, and not just any kind of scholarship, the latest scholarship. You see? Yes. He did that. And because of his probity, accountability, his vision, his insight, you see, he he set up a model of kingship and leadership that other aspects kings that came after him aspired to. That's why till date, we talk about him. Till date, we revere him because he was an extraordinary leader. I don't want to mention names from antiquity, but you name whoever you want to name as a great leader. Oh, this and this, the great. Or Caesar this, or Pharaoh that. He was their contemporary. He was their equal. In every in every sense of the word, he was their equal. Yes, I definitely wanted to. I'm glad you said that because he is a name that that people should know just as an individual. And I I also wanted to, to get your take or have you share with the audience. He was also advanced in terms of the way he governed, and Molly had a document that's a UNESCO heritage document that predates the Magna Carta called the, and if I get this wrong, please correct me, uh, doctor, if I pronounce it wrong, the Kirukan Fuga Charter, which is kind of a constitution or bill of rights or what have you. Can you say more about that? Yes. It was the character of ancient kingdoms that when a king comes to power, you establish your baseline as to how you want to rule in terms of justice, in terms of fairness, in terms of uh, citizenship rights, gender rights. And he followed that suit. It's just unfortunate that, you know, people know of the stele in Egypt and all of that, of the kings, and don't know so much of this charter document that he produced. But it goes to show his intellect and his learning that he felt that, look, I need to have a document that would bring all my subjects together. I need to have a light for my people. I need to set up a standard that can guide my entire realm. And this is the thing that led him to this charter. Again, it goes back to what I said at the beginning about how Sundiata was what one might even call a philosopher king. Definitely a scholar, definitely aware. And it is this, these aspects of his personality that we see when we, 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 we then see what he produced as a charter for his people. That still today... I'd say this, and it's not a judgment on the leaders in Africa today. They are doing what they can. But you go back and read his charter. 
the clarity and the vision. And sometimes I do think to myself, why is he not here today? I know, I know. And and so to that point, and so we can move, but I do want to reemphasize again, is the Karukin Fuga Charter, or sometimes called the Mandate Charter, and just to give people an idea of the sophistication, that's a preamble like, you know, our sort of uh, constitution in the United States. There's seven chapters and they cover things like social peace, women's rights, right to education, which Dr. Nusiri talked about, food security, gender, self-expression. Yes, gender, citizenship rights, rights of slaves and even diversity. Uh, and I, I do want to, and by diversity, one of the things is, is that um, the Mali Empire, it's a Mande or Mandika people, but it's multicultural in that there are lots of ethnic groups within Mali at that time and different religions as well. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. I focused on gender when I was talking about the charter because just look at how old that document is in Africa. And Sundiata had the presence of mind and the vision that he's going to speak on gender rights. You know, to dismiss notions that, you know, it is some some person from out there that is coming into Africa today to teach us about gender rights. Yeah, now, yes, and that's kind of why I want to go through this is that, you know, that Hegel, ignorantly said Africa has no history and Africa has all of the history. I mean, again, this document predates the Magna Carta. We want to, I want to move on a little bit past that. And I want to go to someone you were touching on, Mansa Abubakari II. First off, what is the term Mansa? What is that? It simply means a king, you know? Okay. Uh, Mali Empire, that's how they address their king. It's like saying um, Caesar. Caesar Augustus. It's, it's, it's basically King Augustus or Emperor Augustus. You know? So for the Malian people, they address their king as Mansa. So, yeah, it simply means king, you know. And, and what were some of the things? You talked about Abubakari II and his uh, voyage. Talk a little bit more, more about that. All right. So somewhere in the uh, 1300s, there was a Mansa Musa, and on his voyage to uh, to Mecca for the Hajj, um, he stopped in Egypt, and he was so resplendent and informed that scholars in Egypt they had uh, sessions with him to learn more about his people. So uh, he was the one that told the story of the Mansa before him. Some people believe it's Abu Bakr the um, second. Some people believe. There was a mistranslation from the Arabic, and the name of the Mansa is not Abu Bakr the second, it's Mansa Q, you know. But he told the story to the Arabic scholars of the Mansa before him, who, because of his vision to transcend the Atlantic Ocean, to see what is on the other side, you know, put together a plethora of boats because of their wealth and their learning and their state of awareness, they could do that put together a plethora of boats and sailed into the ocean and gave the throne to Mansa Musa to hold. He did not make it back. 
And there have been lots of speculation as to what could have happened to that flotilla of boats and supplies and all that. Uh, there are those that speculate that, you know, perhaps they got into the Atlantic Ocean and they drowned by currents and storms and all the rest of it. There are those that um, speculate that perhaps they landed in some other coast, someplace. But there are also those that strongly believe that they made their way to South America. That is a strongly belief uh, to Mesoamerica and to South America. And there are some archaeological finds in South America and in, that some have pointed to to say Africans got here before Columbus. Africans got here before Columbus. Uh, some have even taken it further to say that when you look at the DNA of some of the indigenous peoples in the Americas, you go far back that you will discover that some of it is from Africa and it's not recent. It's DNA that goes way back, you know, and they wonder how did that occur? Would one want to say, oh, we find that simply because all civilizations started from Africa before people, you know, moved to different parts of the world. But there are those that say, no, it's got to be the Africans that sailed across the Atlantic and landed in the Americas before Columbus or anybody else. And then there was the mixing that then happened, you know. So this is, this is a little-known story of African greatness and vision and foresight and adventure. Yeah, no, I I think that's really important. And I, I don't know, you know, so if we start with Sunjata, I don't know which number, I, I guess Abubakari would be the eighth monster or someplace. So we're also talking about a government or a society that is able to have succession and develop new leaders. We're also talking about a society, again, controlling that much gold and not being invaded by the Arabs in the Middle East or definitely like Europe, who was not even sophisticated enough to to be a part of those trade networks or China or any place else. So to hold that wealth, but then to expand and have the ambition, you know, to let's travel the world, that whole idea of let's find new routes, let's explore or what have you. So a very sophisticated Society, And I want to make sure that people come away with that because on our next uh, next sort of stop of major figures in Mali, there's a whole lot of legend around it and people can get trapped up in the in the uh, romantic parts of it. But I want to make sure that we don't miss that. This is an ongoing, sophisticated, international kingdom or empire that's happening right now and happening at a time when a lot of Europe is, is being ruled by the Moors and that, you know, this is what Europeans refer to as the dark ages of where learning gets stopped, but in Africa it was thriving and uh, moving forward. So I will stop and, and, and ask you to talk about the ninth Mansa, um, Mansa Musa. You started a little bit with him talking about the voyage, but Take us to the beginning of his sort of reign and, and what he did. Mansa Musa, the great, you know, 
we should add that there, Mansa Musa the Great. Not just Mansa Musa, you know? Mansa Musa the, the Great. Great. I like that. Yeah. I, I, I'll uh, add that. All right? Yeah. Yeah. Mansa Musa the Great. He came to global attention when he took the pilgrimage to Mecca. That was when he came to global attention. Why? Mansa Musa went with about 60,000 in his entourage when he left Mali on his way to Mecca. And he carried so much gold, history records, historical data records that he carried so much gold that when he got to Egypt, to North Africa, the price of gold collapsed in the gold market. And the collapse of the price of gold in the market in North Africa reverberated in other parts of the world because there were merchants that were coming to North Africa from different parts of the world, from Europe, definitely. So it reverberated. And the traders in Venice, who we have heard so much about and we regard so highly, traders in Venice were talking about Mansa Musa and what Mansa Musa had done to their trade. But I'll take a step back, right? Before he went to Mecca, and his, his whole going on that pilgrimage was not just to go worship in Mecca, but it was also to, to intentionally to sort of show the world that Mali has arrived. If you didn't know, know it now. And there's a question you asked why the Arabs didn't invade Mali and all that. Think about this. Mansa Musa went with an entourage of 60,000. Now, the North Africans had been trading with Mali for decades, right? They had known that Sundiata had conquered Ghana. They had known about his intellect. They had known about his charter. They had known about his army and his discipline. Yes. Tell me, why would you want to mess with that guy? Yes, Right, right, right. No, listen. So I want to want to stop, just just and pause, and just put that kind of in perspective. So to to go on the Hajj or to to go to Mecca from from Mali, you're talking sixty thousand people, five hundred camels, sixty thousand tons of gold. His wife had five hundred servants with her. I mean, this is a huge, huge deal. And it's not just that they're carrying this. The way I read it is it's sort of like the way countries right now will compete to host the World Cup or host the Olympics or to, you, you know, that that what what Mansa Musa the Great was doing was moving from just a international trading partner, which had already been established, but now moving Mali to becoming a superpower more in the world and saying, you know, we're we're we are the influencers or what have you. And just while we're here, because I want to ask you just some things about what he accomplished and moved in on the on the pilgrimage. But I, I want to make sure our listeners understand also the level of sophistication and discipline and having a standing army is that the Sahara Desert is about the size of the United States, okay? 
So to go from from Mali to Egypt, you are talking about someone moving a lot of people with a lot of discipline, a lot of protection, a good army, and a lot of diplomacy. So we're we're not just talking about people who are unsophisticated at this point. But when he gets to Egypt, he does meet with the sultan there in Egypt, who's kind of one of the major figures. And you mentioned the, the merchants of Venice. What did people write about Mansa Musa? I'll tell you a document that continues to exist today, just to give an example of what people said and wrote about him. Today, we talk about the Catalan map. The Catalan map was produced in Spain, and it was an atlas of the world, an illustrated atlas of the world, the Catalan map. To the listeners, you can go on the internet and put the Catalan map, and you will see it for yourself. It's this beautiful illustrated map from Spain, produced about 20, 30 years after the king that died, but that map has an illustration of Mansa Musa, the Catalan map produced in Spain. It's got an illustration of Mansa Musa wearing a crown of gold and holding a gold coin. Yes. That is how much impact the journeys of Mansa Musa and the writings about him by the Arabic scholars that he met along the way that were profoundly impressed and interested in this king wrote and left for us. The Catalan map, you don't need to go to, you know, uh, some archives, you know, to read up on this king. The Catalan map is right there in front of everyone's face. It's on the internet. Go check it out for yourself. There's the illustration of the king wearing a gold crown, holding a gold coin, and he's there. Mansa Musa, king of Mali. This is in Europe. Yep. This is in Europe. Now, one of the things that he also achieved was that on his way back to Mali, he got back to Mali with a whole host of scholars. Some of us have heard, some of you would have heard of um, Timbuktu. You know, we make a lot of fun about it, Timbuktu, the spelling Timbuktu. And some people say, oh, you have upset me. I'm going to throw you all the way to Timbuktu as this place that is like at the far ends of the world. But Timbuktu was a center of learning. Yes. Mansa Musa, you know, stocked up on the library in Timbuktu. He brought scholars. He brought urban planners. Yes. Because they were not living in little huts. They were not living on trees. They were living in cities. Well-planned, well-built cities. And this is not to, to, to get anybody um, up in the air. You know, they were living in cities where definitely uh, some parts of Europe or Asia did not have cities. Some did, did not have cities. They were living in cities that Master Musa brought scholars and urban planners. Yeah, and so so to that end, I want to do two things, just put in context for us at this point. So we have Mali, and we understand that, or maybe people don't understand. I'll let you tell it. Give us a sense of, at this time in the world, who are the major 
powers in the world, or at least on this side of the Atlantic, because, or at least on on the East Atlantic, because we're in the in the Western Hemisphere now. But at least in that side of the Atlantic, who were the major powers at that point? In the Americas, definitely um, Aztec. They were there in the Americas. In Europe, Europe, because a lot of the writings that those of us here and now in this podcast have read, the education we have received is um, in many ways a Europeanized education. So we know more about Europe than probably any other parts of the world because of the education that we have received. At this time in Europe, as you earlier said, they were going through the Dark Ages. At this time in Europe, they were experiencing um, plagues, sicknesses and disease in Europe. At this time in Europe, they were also coming off a hundred years war. So you, you had kings of France and kings of Spain and kings of Germany, Britain, and all that. You had this 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 thing where there was uncertainty, instability, and I dare say high levels of poverty in Europe at this time in the world. They themselves in their writings call this the Dark Ages of Europe. The 13th century running into the 14th century, running into the 15th century. You know, they themselves call this the Dark Ages before what they call the Age of Reason. You know, of course, at this time, in uh, China, in um, India, they had already established a land route of trade, you know, in silk and all of that to India and to China, right? At this time also, you had developments in East Africa where um, Arab merchants and traders had begun to also enter East Africa and they were trading through ships across the Indian Ocean and, and all of this. So these were the goings-ons in the world and the goings-ons in Africa. And at this time, at least we know that as at the 13th century, as at the 13th century, Mali was at its apex. We know this. And we know that the known world, from our perspective, knew about this empire. They were not ignorant. They knew about this empire. They knew that it was a source of gold. They knew that it was a source of learning with scholars. The world was not ignorant. In fact, part of the reasons why the adventurers and explorers from Portugal and Spain decided to go around the Horn of Africa and sail down West Africa was partly due to Mansa Musa's trip. Right. Because, because, because they, had been, they had been hearing from the Arab traders and the Arab scholars that, you know, there's this empire interior in Africa, gold, ivory, and other things come from there. They had been hearing this for centuries. They had been hearing all of these stories, you know? They're hearing all the stories. Master Musa sort of confirmed it. He sort yeah. of confirmed it that definitely that 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 romantic city that you're hearing of gold in West Black Africa exists. And this was the impetus 
that made them to think, hey, you know what? Rather than buying gold from the North Africans, we can just sail and go find this city of gold and get the gold directly for ourselves and pay less, cut out the middle person for this gold. This is what pushed them to come down to West Africa and to come down to the coast of present-day Ghana and West Africa. And guess what? When they got there, what did they call it? They called it the gold. You was like, hooray, you found it. I know. So so what I, I want to put this, and thank you for that, because, you know, in my in understanding, so we have Master Musa coming from Mali and he makes it to Cairo. And you mentioned North Africans, the Berber traders, who also the Berber traders with the Moors and, and, and what have you the trading world and people are trying to really trade with China, who's kind of the superpower, the Arabs in sort of Cairo were, were really the place where you had to go to, to they were the middleman for everything. And, and like you said, trading down into the East coast of, of Africa, where the Swahili coast, what we know and those things of things now, but, you mentioned that Mansa Musa on his way back. I want to want to stop just there for a minute, and I do want to get to the gold rush because really Mali is the original gold rush in the original El Dorado. But you mentioned Timbuktu as a major center, and Mansa Musa on like what happens when you have an Olympics or or what have you. I live in Atlanta. And the Olympics put Atlanta really on the map from a world standpoint, and you begin to have people migrating here, what have you. So Mansa Musa does put Mali on the map and brings back scholars, urban planners, architects, and artisans, and what have you. I do want to 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 stop there because there's a city, Janae, which is in Mali. And there's some artwork, the terracotta soldiers or what have you, that you can see in the British Museum or other places. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the Malayan art or, you know, sort of culture that was coming out of, of Mali? Yes. Apart from the, the, the uh, statues of soldiers, the things that came out of Mali at that time, you'd have to talk about poetry music that came out at that time. And you'd have to talk also about the instruments that they developed. When you go to West Africa today and you travel to the different countries in West Africa today, especially countries of the Sahel, you would still find um, elements of the of the art in terms of the cloth. You'd find um, elements of the art in terms of the metal arts you'd find elements of the art in terms of the griot musical tradition. You'd find elements of the art in terms of the jemba drum. These were, were, were things that were invented at that time through people of the Mali Empire. And to tell you how, 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 how powerful all these things are, you go to these places today and you can still see artisans using the very methodologies that were invented, let's not say developed, they were invented by the artisans of the Malian Empire. You know, so as an academic, it brings a question 
some of the things that uh, some of the anthropologists that later came to West Africa in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, you know, said about people in these regions, about our people in these regions. Oh, they have no taste or sense of style, no um, aesthetics and all of that because they are just animals. They are brutish. Um, often I say to my students that if there is one, one thing that puts to lie the assertion that Africa had no civilization, I say to them, is the African arts. That if there was one thing that puts to lie the assertion that there were no civilization, is the African art. Because the African art is so vast, the treasures, the African art treasures, whether it's statues of gold or ivory or brass or bronze, whether it's cloth and the methods that we develop to dye and color, the beautiful bright colors for the cloth or even for, for, for the houses. You go to those regions today, you still see houses that are decorated and painted with these beautiful dyes and colors that are locally invented, you know, not paints bought from shops. Of course, when you talk about the music, see how far the music has traveled. Music invented in West Africa, you know, particularly the West African music, the West African drum. See how far that music has traveled. You know, it's traveled into jazz, blues, rap, all over. See how far that music has traveled. So you must give credit to the originators, the inventors that they were geniuses. Yes. To leave humanity. They didn't just leave Africans with this heritage. Let's be clear. This heritage that has been given to all of humanity. Yeah, thank you for that, because, and that's really important. And when you read history comprehensively, what you begin to understand is that it's not just that one group created everything, it took all of humanity to give us what we have now. And Africa's contribution, and Africa's is huge. We're only talking about one kingdom. Uh, you know, in a period of time that contributed so much. I do want to ask you one one question just uh, as we move on a little bit. You mentioned a griot. What is a griot? A griot is um, the simplest way to put it, that lots of people put it, is that a griot is a praise singer, right? So you have an event, a royal event, and there's a griot that comes on with their instrument, and they begin to, to talk, sing. You see? They talk, sing. And in their talk, sing, they might praise the king, but at the same time, they might rehash the history of the people at the same time. You see? So the griot was so important to the festive tradition in equatorial Africa. For West Africa... We talk of the griot often for West Africa. In Central Africa, you hear them talk of the um, atalaku in their music, you know? So they sing their music, and at some point in the music, they take a break, and you hear this person talk, sing in the music. 
as a tradition, you see. And of course, that that talk sing from the griot, that tradition was carried across the Atlantic by our people that went to South America, North America, to the Caribbean, and was from there transferred back to Europe, from those that went from the uh, Caribbean back to Europe, and has gone through development to rap music today, where the the, uh, earliest form of rap music, as you and I know, old enough to know, that the earliest form of rap music, right back to the 80s, they were talk sing. Yes. The earliest form, they were talk sing. And they were commentaries on the people's experiences, life histories. That was what they were. You know, today we have refined the rap music and, you know, we, we, we sing about so, so many other stuff. But the earliest rap music, they were talk sing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, it's that, that commentary about what's going on and we've kind of lost some of that, you know, we're, we're getting close on time, but I do want to just make sure people leave with this is that find out more about Molly because you're talking about a culture, an, an empire that spans from the 13th century to the 17th century with a professional standing army with its own constitution with women's rights. It was multicultural in terms of ethnicities and religions, sophisticated in terms of international trade and had succession and many ways of, of, of justice. A lot of the visitors, especially Ibn Tuta, or some of the people who were Arab scholars who visited, talked about how safe they felt in Mali, safer than in portions of India or in China and other parts of the known world, just how sophisticated Mali was and what it contributed. You mentioned that Mansa Musa the Great is really the real King Midas because he's on the Kotlin Atlas and people see him and now everybody wants to come to West Africa to, to find the gold or trade in the gold and cut out sort of the middleman out of the trade and lower the price and all of those things. But I want to ask you this question. Why is it that, and, and we know that Mansa Musa now today is becoming, you know, we know that he was the richest man in the world ever. They estimate that his wealth would be like $400 billion If we put that Jeff Bezos, is, he would look poor to Mansa Musa. But why is it that we know so much about Shaka Zulu and know so little about Mansa Musa? Yeah. Interesting question. One of the simplest answers, it's got many sides to it, but one one of the simplest answers, obviously, is because of the white settlers in Southern Africa telling their story. Because, you know, they're very good at telling their stories in what they write, in media, in films, and all that. So there is a a projection of Shaka the Zulu, a lot of it in the Western media, partly because of that. Look at this African king. And in that projection, let me say, in that projection, they also use that projection to show, oh, he's brutal, or he's um, animalistic, or he is unforgiving, 
or his vengeful, right. you know, in that projection of, of Chaka the Zulu, in that projection of the black person. There's that projection through, you know, that focus on Chaka the Zulu, right? And of course, eventually, uh, Shaka was conquered. So, like this person that acts on impulse, animal impulse, was conquered by this other person that acts on reason. You see, so it sort of feeds into that long-held biased view of um, Africa as heart of darkness. It fits into that whole Joseph Conrad trope of Africa as the heart of darkness to to tell the story of um, Shaka and project that story, right? While you've got other kinds of stories that can be told, like Mali, but even before Mali, other kinds of stories like Kush and Shabaka, Tihaka, you know, that are also fascinating. African rulers that are also fascinating. Black African rulers that are also fascinating that can be told, you know, uh, stories from the Benin Empire and the superb, fantastic artwork from the Benin Empire that I cannot praise enough. You know, just imagine the uh, king of the Benin Empire, Oba of Benin. Think back 600 years, 700 years, resplendent palace filled with artworks, resplendent artworks. What is that king doing with such works? I tell you what he's doing. He wakes up in the morning and he comes down the staircase with swagger, right? And he looks at yeah, his yeah, yeah. You know, he looks at his beautiful artwork and he crosses his foot and sits down and nods his head and he says, This is what life is all about. You know? Yeah, no. Yeah, no, no, I know. That's perfect. And, and, and thank you for that. Listen, like I said, or like Dr. Nusiri said at the beginning, there's no one source, no one podcast, no one book to learn about any one place in Africa, let alone the, the entire continent. There is reading. There is talking to people. There is visiting there is museums, there is the oral tradition, and it takes intent and study. But Africa as a continent has really rich history, and Mali is just one kingdom. And there's so much we could go into even with Mali, but we just don't have time. I hope you go out and and are sparked by this conversation to learn more about it and to share more. Um, Dr. Nasiri, we ask everyone on the uh, parlay in all blue, what does it mean to live well? For me at this point, uh, to live well has become not just that, you know, I got a job as a lecturer and academic and earn a salary, but to make a, a contribution to black lives and to better the life of the collective. That for me, has 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 become very much part of what I see at this point as living well, not just for me, but for us. I like that. Thank you for that. And we also end with uh, lighter questions. I want to ask you about West African food, and you are from Cameroon, yes, right? Geographically, West Africa. Geographically, West Africa. Yes. And so 
where have you had where have you enjoyed West African food the most not on the continent of Africa? I've eaten West African food in the US, in Germany, in France, in England. I have to admit, there was there was there was a restaurant that I went to in London with my cousin that took me there and it's West African food. And yeah, that 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 has been my best experience, closely followed by 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 probably Paris. Yeah. So it's London for me. Outside of Africa, where I've eaten the best West African food, it's London for me, closely followed by Paris, before the United States. I've also had good experience of you know eating West African food in restaurants in the United States. But for me personally, it's London, Paris, and then the U.S. All right. Well, listen, I want to really thank you for taking the time to join us and just give us this entry point into a small slice of African history with the empire of Mali. For everyone else, I hope you are really enjoying and and getting something out of the parlay in all blue. We will be back with you next week. We appreciate you. And uh, to Dr. Nasiri, thanks again. Bye-bye. It's my honor to have been here. Bye-bye too. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.